Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European Wine Drinkers California Wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful. The wines are great. You'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com. Discount code CONTACTS at checkout. Drink Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Element is thrilled to be releasing a new limited-time flavor this November, Element Milk Chocolate. I drink Element every day to support my workouts and being on the court and in the classroom. As a member of our community, Element has a special offer for you. Claim your free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Get yours today at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash contacts. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I'm feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Elroy's Fine Foods, the uncommon market. A revival of the community market, promising you an uncommon shopping experience and the finest of groceries and prepared foods. When Chloe and I first envisioned what Elroy's Fine Foods would become, we wanted to build a market that was focused on building community. 
a beautiful store that not only sells incredible foods, but also prioritizes environmental and social responsibility and provides the community with a safe space to shop, eat, and hang out. Elroy's Fine Foods is located in Monterey, California, offering the most delicious prepared foods, curated groceries, certified organic produce, a full-service bulk food section, fine cheeses, natural wines, local beers, and humanely raised meats and sustainably caught seafood. Elroy's Fine Foods, the uncommon market. 15 Soledad Drive, Monterey, California. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sport-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, and tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to Contacts. We are blessed to be joined this evening by my brother, Michael Morrison, former professional basketball player and current legacy early college regional team head coach. Mike, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate you taking the time. Oh, man, listen, I'm blessed to have another opportunity, man, to talk basketball, man, in life with the great one. I appreciate that. And I would like to ground the audience here a little bit because your background's a little bit different than most of the uh, coaches I have had on. So if you don't mind taking us through your basketball journey, let's just say that <laughs> as a athlete and now as a coach, take us through that and how you got into it originally, okay. but also how you, and we'll dig into this a lot deeper on the pod, but how you pivoted from being a player to a coach. That's a great segue, man. Great way to introduce this thing, man. You do such a great job asking great questions, but I'm going to give you the synopsis, the cliff note version. I was a high school basketball player back in PG County, Maryland, played at Northwestern High School. Lynn Bias made our high school famous. I'm one of three players to play in the NBA besides Lynn. Uh, Jeff Green, Larry Spriggs, and myself all had the fortunate opportunity of growing up in that program, going on to college, and then becoming pros. I went to Loyola College, now Loyola University in Baltimore, Maryland. I had the pleasure until 2021 draft of being the only player selected in the NBA. We just had another guy drafted this past year who Yugoslavian born citizen. Had a chance to talk to him a little bit before the draft and all that good stuff. But anyway, drafted in the second round by the Suns in 1989. Spent a year and a half with the Suns. Spent some time with Washington Wizards, then the Bullets. Waived that season, but picked up by the Sixers. Finished that season in the CBA. Sixers released me as well. Played with three teams in the CBA. Started in Rapid City, South Dakota. Went from Rapid City to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Played for Henry Bibby. Mike's Bibby's dad, and then ended up in Wichita Falls, Texas, where I played for former Indiana head coach, Mike Davis. And we had a cast of characters on that team. Jared Jackson's father, Jared Jackson Sr. was on our team from Georgetown. We had Enos Watley from Alabama, who was a 11th round pick by the Chicago Bulls, was on that team as well. And then myself and, and Rodney, I don't know if people remember, um, what was Rodney's last name? Rodney Blake. 
big kid that played at St. Joe's back in Philly, man. Rodney was a monster. But we ended up winning the championship that year, beat George Carl, who eventually went on to be the head coach of the Seattle Supersonics. They had an all-star squad, but we were able to beat them for the CBA championship. The next year, I went to Orlando, played with Orlando through the preseason, and they released me, and I went into the Global Basketball League. They had teams all up and down the East Coast, played in that, and I didn't finish the season there, went overseas for the first time. Then the next year, I ended up in Dallas. Same situation, played through the um, preseason with the Mavericks, uh, sprained my ankle pretty bad. They kept me on the roster till January, then released me. And then that began my overseas journey. I went back to Venezuela, left Venezuela and went over to the Philippines, left the Philippines and went to Australia, left Australia, went back to the Philippines, left the Philippines and went over to Turkey, left Turkey and went back to the Philippines, left Turkey and went to Israel, left Israel and came back home and after I was home for a little while, I went back and finished up in 2000 in Germany. And then in 2001, after retiring, I'm sitting in my mom's kitchen and uh, trying to figure out what's the next steps in life. And I was complaining because I had been out of the country for so long from 90, what was that, 94 to 2000. AAU basketball really hit that boom around that time. And growing up, we had one AAU team in DC. We didn't have four or five of them, just one. And you had to be really good and you were selected to try out. They called it the youth games then because it was the Junior Olympics. Uh, so you had to be selected to play. And I was fortunate enough to play with guys like Danny Ferry, Sherman Douglas, Dave Butler. We had a really good team. I didn't get much time. It was great experience. Uh, so I was sitting there complaining about stuff I had seen and listened to these guys at the gym I was working out, talk about their kids. And my mom was like, that's not like you. You're going to complain about something. Why don't you get involved and help change it? I was like, wow. I hate coaches. I didn't have any good experiences with coaches other than my high school coach. Uh, me and my college coach now have a very good relationship, but it was strained there for a while because he had a job to do and I didn't necessarily like the way he did it. But nonetheless, he brought the best out of me and turned me into the uh, pro that I became. But I got involved. I volunteered at a local high school and I loved it. And 15 years late, well, no, shoot, we're in 2022. We were talking about 18 years later. Now, this is my fifth time being a head coach as well as an assistant coach with the national team there at Legacy Early College. But it's been an amazing journey, amazing pilgrimage. And I can honestly say I have more passion about coaching today than I did when I first started. I'm really embracing the learning aspect of it, studying films, studying different concepts actions and movements and really just sitting down with coaches like yourself and just sharing knowledge man about one the dynamics of developing the player and all the things that go with it now as far as handlers the nil stuff the the potential to have four or five different handlers or trainers that work with them balancing travel basketball with the requirements of your high school team and so it's a lot that goes into it, but I, I can honestly say I love every bit of it. Even, look, listen, even the parent that's texting me right now at 927 at night about her baby and, and all the stuff that the coach is not doing for him. <laughs> well, first of all, the journey you just rattled off, I couldn't even follow. And you have <laughs> more passport stamps, I'm sure, than I could even imagine, considering I got my passport 
at age 45 the month before COVID hit. So I'm still looking for my first one. But in regards to that, the questions that I have, I've got to parse through here so they don't divert us too much. But what I want to start with is what did you learn in your overseas experience from a basketball perspective that you brought back to the States and implemented when you started coaching? Because often basketball is the American game, but overseas it's now blown up. And from my understanding, there's a lot of different approaches, especially overseas and how they teach the game. Is there something that you were able to learn there and bring back and be like, yo, we got this wrong over here. We need to be doing X. Skill development, the attention to the details that they place on the younger kids. And it's very interesting because I coach a 12 and under travel team. And the things that I would like to teach that 12 and under team, because the parents have never been exposed to what I've been exposed to, is viewed as that's just overkill. That's kids don't need to know all that. And unfortunately, that's the separator between us and the rest of the world. Our kids are behind when you look at the basketball IQ of things. We look for the talent. We look for the athlete. We look for that guy that's got explosive athleticism, length and size and speed and quickness. That's the guy we want. And we feel like we can teach him the other things he needs to know. Well, if you've noticed, the game has become more of a player's game. The better you can dribble, the more we're going to put the ball in your hands. Whereas one point in time, it was more about movement. Popovich probably is the king of that, being able to join the two, the Western world with the with the European world and bring that mesh together where you had a guy like Mr. Fundamental, Timmy Duncan and David Robinson anchoring a team with all these foreign guys that just dribbled and made crazy passes. You're out of, you're going to shoot a layup? No, I'm going to throw it out here for a three. It's like, what in the world are they doing? That's what I learned because every team I played on in Europe, Middle East meaning Israel and every team I played in, in the Middle East, as far as Turkey is concerned or over in Asia, they use their professional athletes to train the understudies or the younger kids. So I traveled around the provinces of the different countries doing skills clinics with the different guys who are on the national teams and things like that, which is interesting because as a Nike contractor, I've spent the last 16, 17 years working LeBron skills academies, Kevin Durant skills academies. And that's the only time you'll see them working, but they're only working with the best of the best. Whereas in Europe, these guys are in the bush like us. We're those guys, we're in the bush. We're in a little town in Irvine, California, next to a factory somewhere doing an outdoor clinic. Mm -hmm. It was never about, you know, let's just get this select group of kids and only work them out. No, we shared our knowledge and, and the things that our team was doing with the rest of the country. And that, that was something that I tried to institute here uh, in the States to still do those skills clinics for, for the 99, not just for the 1%. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it's the homegrown approach versus go find somebody when they're already not fully developed, but you're ultimately, we can grow what we need right here by pouring the energy and effort into them. On that note, you also mentioned that you didn't have the best relationships with your coaches yeah. and you didn't, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you essentially said you didn't have any that you thought were great other than your high school coach. 
What did you learn from those experiences that you didn't want to revisit on your athletes? How have you taken what you learned during that journey and either done the opposite or tweaked it so that you could deliver the experience you wish you had? So I don't make coaching personal. No kid that I coach can ever make me hate them. No kid can ever be so bad that I can't work with them. My, my rule of thumb is I won't let you quit, but I'll know when to give up. I'm never going to let a kid, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to, you know, spoon feed them or, or keep them from being pushed. I'm going to push them to the brink or at least to the place where I think I'm helping them. But as soon as I get that pushback, I'll lighten up. Doesn't mean I'm going to bury them on the bench and never play them again. But I coach for only developmental purposes. My job's down on the line, whether we win or lose. And, and, and I like that aspect, but I also hope one day to have a job where my job's on the line based on the development of the players that I have. One of the things that I did not like about college and pros was I didn't have a relationship with my coaches. It was business. They could care less how I felt. And they made sure I knew that on a regular basis. It was never about my feelings. It was never about what's going on with you personally. Now, my college coach took some interest in it to a certain extent, but there were so many other things that went along with his job that I didn't understand as a player that I understand now. So one of the things that I've taken into my coaching now is the right perspective. I'm not coaching pros. I'm not coaching kids that may not ever play college basketball. I'm coaching young men that are like clay. They need someone to pour into them or shape them or help them build a foundation that can be built upon. I'm not going to have a finished product when they leave as seniors. I'm going to have a product that may be only half built, but hopefully that half that I'm able to add to or that quarter or that tenth is, is sound enough that it can stabilize them in other areas of their life. So I really want to teach transferable skills as much and as often as possible. Yes, and I think sports are designed to do that. However, sometimes they get hijacked into being about something else. And I wish that we could get to a point nationally across all disciplines. It's look, these are just vehicles to teach people how to be part of something bigger than themselves, how to lead, how to follow, how to be part of a team, how to learn some of these character lessons that aren't being taught other places. And the fact that you're now pouring into it from that approach I can imagine at the end of seasons, at the end of games, allows both you, the coach, and the athletes to have more of a transformational experience than one that you experienced. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about your experience and what you got to see behind the curtain as a pro from what you just described it was business like we had no relationships we were chess pieces can you shine a little bit behind the curtain on what that was like and how you bump up against that now in your role as a coach but have an option and a choice to make that different i had some good examples lionel hollins and paul westfall were my coaches in phoenix and i'm using them as an example because one paul's no longer with us and Lionel is still doing what he does. And they extended the olive branch beyond the business. You know, invite me to their home for dinner, checking on me and making sure as a rookie, I was eating right, but I was making the most of my time when I had it. So there were always that human side behind the business. But like my head coach, Cotton Fitzsimmons was strictly business. Jerry Colangelo, strictly business. There was no time for fellowship unless you were 
that player that was bringing in a large amount of money. What I've taken from that and what, what I've tried to do is make sure that my kids understood from the onset that this is bigger than basketball. Not that basketball is the biggest thing. It's a difference. I'm going to say that again. This is bigger than basketball, but let's not make basketball the biggest thing. We, we've had situations where uh, over my coaching career, specifically this last year, where some of my better players didn't get to play in key games because of grades or because of other issues that could have happened on and off the court, for primarily off the court that needed to be handled by taking away something that they love to do. It's an extracurricular activity on this level. And behind that curtain on the on the pro level is you're getting paid to perform but i'm going to control how you perform based on how you prepare and also based on who's unprepared in the areas that we need your services so if kevin johnson isn't performing we're paying him a little bit more money so we're going to give him a little bit more time to get it but if michael morrison isn't performing oh he's a trade piece we don't have to give him another shot he ain't doing it. Let's hey, let's look for somebody else to come in here. And, and it's really just that simple. In college, it's the same thing. My sophomore year, we graduated six guys. Now, that's a large college class <clears throat> for Division One, And we had to bring in all these rookies. And to make it even worse, of the six we graduated, we also lost two sophomore, two juniors. So the juniors that would have been seniors were gone now. So we had eight people to replace. So now you have one returning starter and me and seven rookies and a couple of transfers that came in. And my coach treated those kids like pure D horse dumb. And it was terrible. It was terrible. And it took everything in me as a human being to try to keep those guys built up while trying to make excuses for the way he did things, trying to excuse away the berating, the, the dogmatic attitude, the practicing after losses, the four hour practices, you know, all those things that are illegal now that this man was doing to get the best out of us. Me being the people pleaser I was at the time, I just gritted my teeth and, and bore it and did everything that I could to, you know, try to please this man. So. I don't ever want a kid in that position for me. I don't want to drive kids to the point where they feel like I'm only concerned about them producing on the court. I always try to relate everything we do with life lessons. I had a great principal, John Hockenberry at Riverdale Baptist that, that, that told me not to put all my eggs in one basket, but to make sure that everything I did, I gave my best effort because every little thing would be a bigger reflection on every other thing that I did. If I didn't pay attention to those details, I was gonna struggle in other areas. So that transformed my life, my mindset, my thinking, and it's made me a better person, but it's also given me a chance to help develop that in some of these kids that I'm coaching. So how would you say that mental shift, that experience as you played and as you got into coaching has, not just informed, but actually now made it into your practical approach. If you had to summarize for coaches that are listening, at this point in my life, here's where I'm at. And these are 
the three non-negotiables that will help you be successful as you frame <clears throat> your approach to coaching in your season, your interactions, be it from your 12 U's to your varsity team? Mm. I, I want to exemplify the culture. So the first thing is, is the right type of culture. Competitive without being combative. So even as a coach, I have to exemplify I know you're not making those turnovers on purpose. Although I'm getting on you because we've rehearsed them, I give you the grace and the latitude to correct it. I have a policy. If I take a kid out for a mistake, I put him right back in after I talk to him. I'm not going to go put you down into the bench and make you think about the mistake you made for the next 15 minutes and maybe the rest of the game because it was just, you know, that's the only way we knew how to coach. And I listen to my players. So the first one is culture. The second thing is listening to players. I don't care what the situation is or the age of the player. I'm asking the question about what do you think in this situation? Now, one of the things that I have to adapt to is understanding the word coach. It's a, a French word, coche, that means a teacher through trials. So how do I help a kid through a trial unless I know what the kid doesn't know? It's great for me to say, okay, here's my game plan. We're going to, on defense, we're going to run a 1-3-1, and on offense, we're going to spread the floor and do a dribble, drive, pass, and react offense. And then all of a sudden, the team plays in his own. And the other team is full of post players, and they're putting two people at the block, and we're in a 1-3-1. you got to be able to adjust, and you got to be able to adjust on the fly. You know, that open line of communication and understanding what's working at that time is important. So the first one is culture. The second one is the open line of communication. And, and the third one, I think, is overemphasized and undervalued. And, and that is make it fun. You know, we always say, let's have fun in what we're doing. But, you know, Dabo Sweeney's adapted this phrase, fun is in the winning. Yeah, it is. But how do we label winning? Winning for us is knowing we execute our game plan. If that score, like I told you earlier off camera, we lost by one point. And it was ridiculous because the fans were going nuts in this championship game. No instant replay, no video. Of course, the ref can't make a foul with no time on the clock. Tie score and you give them a free throw to win it. Now you're deciding the game. And I was, I patted myself on the back because my first reaction was, let's calm down. He still got to make the free throw. Y'all come here and let's think about what we're going to do in case he misses. I, and for the first time in my life, as a highly competitive person, people that know me will tell you I was probably more competitive to a fault where they wouldn't believe the person that I am now because of the person that they knew then. But when we got into the locker room, uh, it was interesting because the head boys coach of the school that we were playing at in this tournament was sitting at the table and he leaned over to me when I was walking off the court and said, you know, you still had two timeouts and four fouls again. And I was like, wow. So when I got in the locker room, that's the first thing I said to him. I said, I don't want y'all to feel like you're lost because you didn't. You played hard. Wasn't our best game, but you played hard and you executed our game plan. I said, but I let you guys down. I wasn't fully prepared. I left some things on the table. And the atmosphere changed in that locker room. There were kids crying because we had such a good season and ended that way. They were like, oh man. Now this was a team that only won three games a year before. For us to have a 17 win season, an 11 game winning streak, those kids were stoked and they were heartbroken when we lost, but to have a coach, and this is something that I didn't have much. When I lost a lot in college, 
it was always, let me point the finger at the people in here that could have done better. You didn't do your job. You didn't do your job. And y'all collectively, even the bench players, y'all should, it was, I never had a coach that owned it. So culture, communication, fun. And fun is in the ownership of each person's responsibility. I couldn't agree more. And it's something that we often hear, but it's not always embraced as a positive. It's usually a negative, but it's like, Players win, coaches lose. And it's like, when you can embrace that and actually understand why, it's super liberating. And versus, oh, they just blame us. No, it's at the end of the day, the kids are out there trying to compete, trying to get better. We try to do, like you said, how do you define winning, right? And I think the scoreboard is one thing. And sometimes you have to look at other ways in which you won or you didn't win and that's okay and it designs you said something else that was man i'll try to figure it out but it's coach is a teacher through trials right so it's like how are we taking them into these trials into these this adversity and learning from it in whatever way we can and it's again sports are a vehicle to teach these things What, what have you seen other coaches do that you have stolen and applied most recently, and it doesn't have to be basketball coaches. Studied a lot of Nick Saban this season, this off season, this pandemic season. And I liked the way Nick would give quotes before every practice. And I know other coaches do it too. Mike Krzyzewski does it, but we would have a thought of the day. And you'd ask the players that throughout practice. And it'd be some little catchphrases, two or three words. Some would be a little bit longer, whether it was attentive to details, whether it was repetition is worship, execution is worship, whatever those small things were, we would reiterate them throughout the whole week. And the thing that I did differently than Nick, I wouldn't do a different one for every practice. We would have a theme for the week. So even though it was a Todd, a thought of the day, we would emphasize that thing every day and go back and review them to make sure it was something that they could take with them and use. Like I said, part of that transferable skill thing, skill set when they go into other things like schoolwork or even in their personal relationships outside of school and sports. I have two questions I want to ask here and I'm trying to sequence them. So I'm going to go back to this one first. Are there mantras that your former athletes or hell current athletes would say almost as a meme about coach Mike as a (laughs) like this where they're mocking you in a way that's love because it's something that is one of your cliches or that all your players know and it still applies today what are those things that kind of stick with your athletes after playing for you man I I know what I would like to think but it's probably some of the the times when I lose my mind and I'm big eyed and I'm screaming and I'm hoarse because I'm yelling instructions out, but we have a way that we start and finish practice. We start strong, but we finish stronger. And then we say finish stronger than you start. So I'm hoping that mantra is something that they take with them. Because again, if you're doing your work, you might start off slow. You might not understand it all, but finish strong and then finish stronger than you started. So remember how you started, finish stronger than that and you'll always be progressing towards something else. So I hope that's the one, but I'm pretty sure if you talk to some of my players, it'll be some of those not so candid moments that I'm not caught off guard, but 
I'm in that competitive mode and I'm just losing my mind over something. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the part of the relationship piece where you can be vulnerable and laugh with them, but also at the same time, they're taking away these lessons that they can apply in other things because start strong and finish stronger. Isn't just a sports deal, right? It's that's how you're working. That's how you're working on relationships and your, your personal growth. What would you say if I asked you about a favorite failure Hmm. that has been important in your transformation as a coach can you point to one or two moments where you were able to turn a significant corner in your coaching career based on falling on your face yeah yeah i I can point to the most recent my wife and i ran into some legal issues because after a game uh, we beat the number one team in our conference i was coaching at a public school then when you talk about falling on your face man when you come home uh, the next morning after being released from jail and you see your picture plastered all over the place and you lose your job, you lose your teaching job, and you're basically blackballed from, from coaching anywhere in your state. I, I don't think there's any lower you can go. And what I was able to do is take those kids that I was coaching, those that parents would allow me. And man, it was a pandemic because it was right at the beginning of the pandemic right there in 2019 or 2020, 2019. And no, just turned into 2020. And I used a basketball court in front of my house, man, and just work kids out. Continued to read and study and and hone my skills because I knew this is what I was called to do. Can you give a little context to the incident that led to that? Just because the way in which you described it, it sounds (laughs) a lot worse. Yeah, it does. My wife recently was saw a clip of Jawan Howard in that situation happen. And she was like, oh, wow, how long did he go to jail for? The incident with us, it was a tight game. We were away. This team was the number one team in our region. We were number two at the time. And we were down by two points. We were down by one point. My guy gets fired. He goes to the line. He hits one free throw, makes it. There was a situation with some time on the clock. Should have been more time on the clock. They wouldn't put it on there for us. But as soon as we go up one, all of a sudden, the time got put back on the clock for them. And everybody on our side, I was like, nope, don't worry, it's okay. They still got a score. We get the steal at the end of the game. The other coaches live it. He's chasing the refs off the floor. They're gone. I'm celebrating with my team. My team is just going nuts. And my wife, who was sitting behind the bench, keeping stats or writing some things down, just is on the floor celebrating. Not in any demonstrative or taunting way, just happy. And my, my wife's not a, a basketball head like me. Our oldest daughter played basketball and she gets into the games, but not to the point where she can tell you everything that's going on. So she's just celebrating. She didn't know that the teams line up and shake hands. Coach didn't line up his team. He's making a beeline over to our bench, but encounters my wife. So my wife has his back to her, but I see her and I scurry over and grab her and pull her to me. Now, the coach and I have known each other. He was the graduate assistant or he was doing his student teaching at the school my daughter played at when she was in high school. So we know each other. We got history. We, I respect him so much as a coach. When I got this job, I called him about different things that he did in his practice. To, so it wasn't like we had a contentious relationship. And during this game, he and I never, you know, I don't exchange words with coaches. I coach my team and I don't even try to coach the refs. I just coach my team. I'm like any other coach. I question calls from time to time, but not to the point 
where I can say I've ever been thrown out of a game. I've only gotten one technical foul as a head coach, one. In, in 15 years of coaching, seven years as a head coach, one technical foul. But anyway, I digress. He's making his way and it looks like he's walking towards my wife and he looks upset. So I grab my wife and put my hand up. I'm like, Reggie, this is my wife. And he was like, we need to get that crazy bitch off my floor. And I was like, wait a minute. Now, I wasn't the only one that heard it. One of my players heard it and he runs up on the coach. I've got my wife in his hand and I push my player out of the way. And I was like, no, it's okay. I got him. And I let my wife go. She walks off and I turn around. I say, you're not going to talk to my wife like that. His assistant coach is a former player that played for me. Is standing right there. And he was like, Coach Mike, calm down. And I was like, no, y'all, you can't let him talk like that. And so people are grabbing me. And he has some other choice words, which I won't say on your podcast. But he has some other choice words for me and my wife. And now I'm a little bit more upset. So I'm trying to get free to get at him because he wants to get at me. And they separate us. That's it. That's it. That, that's it. Nothing else happened. No cheers were thrown. No punches were thrown. I called my principal to let him know what happened. That's a Friday night. Matter of fact, it was on Martin Luther King. No, it was Friday night. Martin Luther King's birthday was that Monday. Mm -hmm. So we're out of school. But he calls me on Saturday morning and asks me if I could come up to the school. I go up to the school. He tells me that I'm suspended and that the player that ran up on him is suspended too. And I'm like, okay. He says, but there's a possibility that the district is going to press charges on you and your wife. I was like, charges for what? What did we do? He was like, you guys kind of incited a riot. I go back and I look at the film. There was no riot. I had such a good relationship with the coaches, with the players and their families. The fathers came down and got their sons. No son went on the other side. No person went on the other side. There was never any interaction between players. There was no semblance of a riot or anything getting out of control, none. There were some other kids there that I coached at other school and they came down and were surrounding me. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand why so many people were on the floor. Mm -hmm. They thought that those people were inciting something different than they weren't. This is on Saturday. We meet again on Monday. They call me back to tell me the length of the suspension. So now I find out I'm suspended indefinitely with pay, mm -hmm. pending whether or not they file charges. We play on Tuesday. So Blake is suspended for five games. I'm suspended indefinitely with pay. So Tuesday I get there and the school resource officer comes to my room and asks me to collect my stuff and come up front. So when I go up front, I find out I'm being arrested. I've got 24 hours to turn myself in or they're coming to get me. And they're like, you need to call your wife because she's got to turn herself into. So the whole time I'm driving home, Justin, I'm like, you know, this is a dream. This, you know, I didn't do anything. Right. Man, fingerprinted, mugshot, place holding the cell overnight. We get released the next morning on our own recognizance and get home only to see. Mm -hmm. So now they tell me I'm suspended without pay. Mm -hmm. um, I need to write a letter of resignation or they're going to fire me. Uh, but they will let me resign first so I could get hired again in the school district, right, only right. to find out nobody in the school district would touch me because of what happened. Right. So there's so, your failure and you, or the context of it. So people understand when you say that. Yeah. And what were you able, as you started talking about training kids in the driveway, turning it into a success later on, talk about that and, and the lessons you learned in choosing to respond the way that you did. 
Well, the, the major thing I tell kids now, and I live today, is walk away from words. No matter what someone calls me or says, is their words. And my grandmother used to say this to me when I was little. You are not what people say about you. You're only what you answer to. Mm. So here in the situation that I was in, I had a chance not to answer to that name that he called my wife. I could have walked away from it. And no matter what you learn culturally, you don't understand the, the fallacies of your cultural upbringing until you're faced with a, a life altering situation like this. Like I understand the reality of, I'm not gonna let somebody talk about my mama. Yeah, you can talk about my mama all you want to. Don't put your hands on it, that's totally different. You can call it what you want. Mm -hmm. Because I understand now the way that the system works and it's not working against me, it's working to protect me. If someone should do the same to me, the law's in place to help me and hopefully it will. I can't say that it won't. And I'm not jaded by what happened to me to think that it wouldn't. I would give the law an opportunity by not putting myself in a position to ever let anyone else control my emotions. So I often have conversation with kids about not giving anyone else <clears throat> charge of your emotions. Your feelings are yours. What happens to you is only as bad as you react to it. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a difference between losing the game and being upset because you could have done better. It's another thing knowing you've done your best and walking out with your head up, just understanding that you just got beat tonight. That's all. And even when you don't, it, it's the, you know, control the things you can control in life and learn how to respond versus react. How would you say that those lessons are now being taught intentionally to your athletes? based on your experience because it's one thing to give them that feedback hey you don't respond or what you said there walk away from words how are you intentionally teaching those lessons in a way that can be shared with other people listening well the the best lessons is always taught in adversity so i look for situations to put my kids in adversity so instead of creating tension between us put them in situations we do a lot of situational practices you're down by two uh, you're down by five with a couple of minutes left. This team has six players. You only have five or this team has five players. You only have four, whatever the situation. And I like to see what my kids reactions are when they're in it, because that's the best teaching tool you have is experience. So once you're experiencing the adversity, and again, the French word for coach is coche. Once, once you're in that coche, I'm able to teach them and train them through trials and through the troubles. That's when they need coaching. And sometimes the practice coach shows up in those trials and you don't even have to say anything. But I'm learning to be quiet at first, to see the reaction before just running to save them or running to intervene. To just having that moment of, I don't know what you want to call it, counting to 10 or that pain pause to just let it sink in to see what happens first. And then finding out really what's on their mind when they're going through or when they're in the trouble. Yes. And when you say I'm learning to pause, what created that shift for you as a coach mm. to realize that adversity strengthens and that you need to let them figure their way out versus saving them? So again, after I went through that trial, what I realized is there was a lot of pauses in my life. Those people, those friends, those families, mm, 
they shrunk down real small. And it wasn't that they were abandoning me. They just didn't know what to say. And they didn't need to say anything. Sometimes your presence, knowing that you're there with them, is all that you need. The thing I always wanted from my coaches was confidence in trouble, and I didn't get it. So when I see my kids going through it, I say, hey, we're here together. This is us. We're in this together, man. I'm not mad at y'all. Yeah, we could have played better up to this point, but we're here now. What we going to do about it? Come on, we're going to execute now. We're going to we're gonna do we, just one execution away from turning this thing around. And, and it's amazing of the reaction from my kids. And the hardest thing is teaching the parents that this is coaching too. That just because I'm not yelling and screaming and berating your kid because he made a mistake doesn't mean I don't love him or that he's not being coached hard. It actually means that I really care about him and I'm trying to ensure that he gets the lessons that he needs at the moment that he needs them or that's going to benefit him best. Yeah, I actually, you just said getting the parents to understand that you're still coaching them. Sometimes your athletes as well, when they've been coached a different way or when they expect you to respond a certain way where I had a interesting and challenging interaction with probably our best player this year, where he made a comment, he got a technical foul late in the game because one of our guys got fouled and he had something to say to the ref and he came off the court because it was his fifth foul, I think, as well. And he's like, if you're not going to protect him, I will. <laughs> it's just, dude, pump the brakes here. It's like, <laughs> we had debriefed it later on. And the irony is you think that behavior is actually productive versus the conversations right. that I'm having with the officials throughout the game, which right. because they're not demonstrative, because I'm not yelling like a knucklehead, you think I'm not working. And it's ultimately helping them right. understand that. Yeah, that behavior doesn't benefit anyone. You can have relationship, right. you can have uh, development, you can be having conversations that are productive in a way, even though the rest of the world doesn't see what's going on. And it was again last night, one of my colleagues made the comment because in, again, I, fascinatingly enough, at least in our area, you have two refs for the entire year, you get to the playoffs, you have three. And it's, it's a different game with three. And so my, my buddy is, man, so many fouls called last night, this, that, and the other, because you got three guys. And I'm like, look, I only had a problem with one call. And I asked the guy, the referee, it's like, hey, what did you see there? Because I was curious, because I thought he was out of position to make a call. And it was like, hey, he explained it. I was like, all right, cool, whatever. But it's, it's just wasted energy. And what do we do with that energy that you can pour into your athletes rather than spinning your wheels? And it's something yeah. that I think has been a big shift for me over the last 20 years, but it's also something that I think empowers your kids with that belief that you just referenced versus spending yeah. all that yeah. energy on negative stuff. Yeah. I love your analogy about where do you put that energy and being able to place that energy in a positive direction. I'm, I'm the, I'm the coach of questions uh, before I got into coaching. I didn't hit this part. I talked to my high school coach because that's the guy I got a really good relationship with. And he said, man, before you coach, spend two years refereeing. So I did. I went to referee camp. I ref some of those uh, high school camps. 
And uh, when they go to team camps in the different colleges, I had a ball. Uh, and it helped me gain a res respect for the referees. So I'm that guy like you. Is that legal guard position, ref? Because it says in order to take a charge, you have to have legal guard position. And it looked like he wasn't established yet. That's just my perspective. What did you see? And, and, and unfortunately, that, that gets under their skin sometimes. It's how you, but it's how you phrase the question. And this is, again, for people listening, we're getting off script here, which is great. It, <laughs> there is an art and a science to yeah. planting the seeds you want to plant. And this happened yes. the other day in our semifinal game, no joke, that we had a guy take a charge before the half. And it was a 50-50 call, like whatever. I, I probably would have called it a block, but they called it a charge. Their coaches lost their minds and spent the first two minutes of halftime while we went to the locker room berating the official it's on the video we come out in the second half and one of our players goes to the bucket probably is a charge they call the block <laughs> and look at the other coach and it's hey if you want to do that you need to understand it's not it's going constantly. to go well for you and <laughs> and so ultimately to your point is that legal guarding position I would say, if you said that to me, as it's that's the same thing as saying he wasn't in position. It's like, I, hey, what did you see there? Well, I thought he was here. Okay, cool, no problem. Now, how do you then plant the seed for the next one in a way in which that your question is received as genuine curiosity rather than some sort of Jedi mind trick you're trying to right, play on? Right, right, right. Touche, touche. I have to rephrase my uh, approach to these things. And remember to plant them seeds early. <laughs> For sure. And I, and I think all. it's, I was given that phrase as a gift at a point guard college uh, camp or clinic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's almost like the uh, Swiss army knife. It works in any situation. Hey, what did you see there? Oh, I saw this. Fantastic. Appreciate it. And any, whatever it was, you can weigh it, you know, give something else. But I just think it's been super helpful in taking away yeah. the frustration because you're now getting to ask the question because shit like you said you you officiated who hasn't done it it's hard it is hard and I, I had to do it for two freshman games this year because we didn't have enough refs and they canceled the games unless we refed them and I was like and, and, and it was like hey hey what about I missed it my bad so it's, it gives you perspective <laughs> let me wrap with this coach what advice would you have for your former self both as a player who played at the highest of highest levels hmm. and as a coach? Oh, man. First as a player, what I, if, if I was coaching myself right now, I'd be like, look, man, don't take it so serious. You're taking too many things personally, and you're way too serious about your growth and development. I, I spent hours and months and days and weeks beating myself up about some of the most minute things that were so insignificant in the grand scheme of my career. I spent way too much time trying to uh, perfect something that was imperfect. And I wish I had taken the fun route and had a little bit more enjoyment on my journey. And as a coach, remember you're always learning. You're never gonna hit the pinnacle of knowledge 
where you think you're the John Wooden of basketball and you've got the pyramid of success. Even John Wooden was continuing to learn and to grow. And, and whether it's from a, a mother, a father, a, a referee, I can learn something. And, and that's one thing I want to embrace in the rest of this journey is ever learning, ever growing, uh, never satisfied, never finished. Great answer. I appreciate that on both accounts, especially as the youth sports industrial complex tries to professionalize our children at very early ages. So I love the fact that, hey, don't be so serious. Mix a little fun in. And yeah. at the same time as a coach, look, there's always something new to learn. That's and right. great advice, great information, great way to end. Thank you for being here today, coach. Claymo, thank you, man, for this platform and this opportunity. I wish you continued success, man, as you transition from one season to the next. This is a great platform, man. I've watched several episodes, man. I enjoy what you do and I can't wait to be back on here again very soon. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Drink Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Element is thrilled to be releasing a new limited-time flavor this November, Element Milk Chocolate. I drink Element every day to support my workouts and being on the court and in the classroom. As a member of our community, Element has a special offer for you. Claim your free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Get yours today at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash contacts.